We talked this morning about one of the most surprising comments that Jesus made in our New Testament, a man who made many very surprising comments. This one should stand out. When Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers came to him at the end of Mark chapter 3, where he was teaching in a house, they were gathered around, and they come and are outside the house, and they send someone in to talk to Jesus, and they say, hey, can you let Jesus know that his mother and brothers are here outside? And so they tell Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here outside, and Jesus responds, who is my mother? Who's my mother? Do you ever wonder whether this got back to Mary? Do you ever wonder whether someone went back outside the house and said, you know, Mary, Jesus said something really interesting. He said, who is my mother? And then he looked around at everyone in the room and he said, behold, my mother. Whoever does the will of God, they're my brother and my sister and my mother. And then Mary, he kept teaching. What would that do to your mother's heart? What would that do if your son had that to say about your family relationship, the bond between mother and child that is unlike any other human bond that we know? Who is my mother? And I start there because the premise that we reached this morning is that the way that Jesus was teaching us was not suggesting for a moment that our physical family bonds would be severed. That's not the teaching of the Bible. Jesus came, and now we don't have to respect our parents. We don't have to provide for our family. We don't have to worry about these nuclear family relationships. It's all about our Christian family. No, it's not what the Bible teaches. But Jesus was teaching what your central responsibility, your central obligation is to do the will of God. And when you do the will of God, first and foremost, believing in whom he sent, as we saw this morning, you are united together in a spiritual family that you will share forever, unlike your earthly, physical family. And we talked about this morning the idea that Jesus, as he so often does, takes all of our earthly created responsibilities and centers them in himself and his kingdom. Obey your father and mother. Why? Because you're in my kingdom. Love your wives. Why? Because you're in my kingdom. And that's what I'd say. Respect and honor your husband. Why? Because you're in my kingdom now. And so he has centered all of these kingdom responsibilities in himself. And that raises the question that I want to get into at a little more depth tonight, is how do Christian parents and children relate to one another? How did Jesus relate to his earthly mother in a way that we can gain insight into and encouragement, both those of us who are parents 
and those of us who are children. Those of us who are children who are seeking as adult children to honor our parents. Those of us who are parents raising young children. How are we going to be raising them and seeking to direct them? What I want to suggest for you is that the way that Jesus relates to his earthly mother here in John chapter 2 is incredibly enlightening and I hope instructive for both parent and child alike. What's going on in John chapter 2? Jesus and his family, Jesus, his mother, and his disciples have been invited to a wedding. This wedding is in a place called Cana of Galilee. Now, we don't know exactly where Cana of Galilee is today. The best guess is that it's about nine miles north of Nazareth. Now, you know Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And so nine miles away would have been not a terribly long distance. Now, if you have this picture in your mind, it's been said that Nazareth, at most, may have been 500 people, population-wise. We're talking about a very small farming-type community. And this would have been the big town in the area. So Cana, if it was indeed nine miles or so away from Nazareth, would have been even smaller We're talking small town life. We're talking farming community. Now, what is true of those kinds of communities? Everyone knows each other. Many people are related to one another. And there seems to be an idea here that Mary was not just an invited guest. She had an important role to play. She may have been family to the ones that were getting married. You say, why? Well, you'll notice that she is the one who notices the social catastrophe that has just taken place. She's the one who notices, we are out of wine, Jesus. What are we going to do? So that suggests that she just wasn't just an invited guest. Not only that, did you notice that she was the one who had the responsibility to order the servants? Hey, listen to him. Whether she was kind of the wedding planner She had some responsibility, perhaps, for what was going on. This was a central social event. And in this exchange between Jesus that we see in John chapter 2, and particularly in verse 3 through 5, and when they wanted or when they lacked wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, woman, What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, what can we learn from that little exchange? Let's start with a title that we're going to use for tonight's message called An Obedient Son. An Obedient Son. And I hope you'll see the way we're using that tonight. An Obedient Son to reflect on this very unique relationship between Jesus and and his mother. Let's start, first of all, by understanding this exchange, this exchange that is going on between Jesus and his mother. Now, notice first this concerned request. The mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, you need to understand the weddings of those days. I'm looking around at at perhaps a father or two who has paid for a wedding who has helped finance a wedding, you think our weddings are big deals? You've got no idea. Weddings in Jesus' day could be week-long events. 
at, at a minimum, they could be three or four day feasts where everyone was invited. And guess what? They weren't paying. Dad was paying. Now, I want you to imagine that idea of there is a wedding, people are coming in from out of town, and you are expected to make sure they have a good time. This was the social event of the year. This was the significant celebration where everyone came together. It was the biggest event of all the year. And so everyone comes together. They come out to this place. Jesus' mother may have had some significant role in this, and suddenly they're out of wine. Now you say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, they didn't go to the supermarket in those days. They didn't say, I'm going to go pick up a, 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 some, some lemonade mix. I'm, I've got the, 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 the punch, and it's my job, and if it runs out, I can just go buy something and whip up some more. It wasn't like that. This would have been a social humiliation. It would have been a social humiliation, the commentators say, would have followed that wedded couple for virtually their lives. Those were the ones where the, where, the, where the wine ran out. Some of you may remember a very um, a wedding that I still remember crystal clear in my mind here from Straightgate Church. It was a wedding with the trumpet player. Does anyone remember that? I know I see some people raising their hands and nodding their head right now. Right over here, someone got married and there was a trumpet player right over here that was hired into play. And I have never heard a worse trumpet player in my entire life try to play. It was the wildest thing. I mean, it was just, it was just awful. And if you knew the bride and, 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 and her um, punctiliousness, it was, it was just the most remarkable contrast. The craziest thing was that I still remember the guy not only played so poorly, he went over to the reception and socialized like, like he was the king of the ball. It was, it was just unbelievable. I would have slunk out with my tail between my legs and said, don't, don't send me a check. We're good. I, I hope to never relive this. But I still remember he was getting food and just, oh, it was really remarkable. Now you say, why does that matter? Because weddings, these kinds of events, stick with us. And for these people to be the wedding where you ran out of wine, your job to keep everyone having a good time and having their needs met, this would have been an absolute humiliation. And so what does Mary do? She comes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, they have no wine. Now notice Jesus hadn't performed a miracle yet. This was not Mary coming to him because she'd said, we've saw, seen you do a whole bunch of abacadabra around our house. Can you make it happen? But if you just imagine, I'm sure Jesus was the one who had an answer to everything. I'm sure Mary had just grown to trust Jesus and, and respect him, and now he's a 30-year-old man, and she's saying, Jesus, they've got no wine. What should we do? And in it, Jesus absolutely must have sensed her expectation. Jesus, not just they have no wine, but Jesus, you're going to do something about it, aren't you? Whether that was miraculous or something else. Now notice what Jesus says. Notice his very curious response. Jesus saith unto her, woman. Now, we weren't there for the tone of voice. I know some of you were raised by moms. If you said, woman, you would have been cuffed upside the head. I know that. Jesus wasn't saying, woman. Probably the best way that you would think of this is he was saying, ma'am. That's the equivalent in our language, ma'am. 
lady, but like a respectful kind of thing. He was not saying this disrespectfully. But notice what he did not call her. He did not call her mom. And he intentionally did not call her mom. Woman. Ma'am. Ma'am. Now that should immediately throw us for a loop. We don't have a record of people in that day in our scriptures calling their mom woman, ma'am. It was intentionally distancing. He didn't call her mom. And then notice what he says next. This is not just a curious response, but it's this clear resistance. He says, what have I to do with thee? What have I to do with you? Now again, we have to understand, this was an idiom. An idiom is a common phrase in that day. Literally what it's saying in the Greek is, what to me and to you? That's the literal translation. What to me and to you? And the idea is, what does this have to do with us, like you and me? Now, what is he getting at? Well, you need to understand, this phrase, this idiom, is used in a handful of other places in the New Testament. And do you know who it's universally spoken toward? It is spoken to Jesus by a demon-possessed man. It's the only time this phrase is used in our New Testaments. It is, you remember all the times in the New Testament when demon-possessed men send to Jesus? What do, we ha- what do you have to do with me? What do we have to do with you? Jesus, there's nothing between us. Leave us alone. There's some distance between us. Now listen to Jesus, the Son of God, saying to his mother, ma'am, What does your request, what does their being out of wine have to do with you and me? Now, the only way to understand this is Jesus is giving her the most respectful stiff arm anyone's ever given. It's a stiff arm. It is saying, I'm sorry, ma'am. That is not the concern between the two of us. Now, what do you make of this? What do you make of a 30-year-old man saying to his mother, ma'am, distance, and resistance? What does this have to do with us? Let's look secondly, not just at this exchange, but at an explanation. At an explanation. We need to understand, who had Jesus been to his mother? Of course, we remember going back to Mary when she was, it was revealed to her that she would have the very Son of God in her womb. She knew that she had conceived when she was a virgin. This was a miraculous kind of conception. She knew that the person that was in her was special, sent to save God's people from her sin. She had seen all of these signs come to pass these mysterious events, shepherds coming, wise men coming from the east, very strange things going on in the temple. She had seen her son be raised up like no other child. She had seen when he was 12 years old them go to Jerusalem and they look around when they leave in the big party, the caravan, and he's nowhere to be found. And they go back and at 12 years old he's in the temple talking to people like he's a learned doctor of the law already interacting about what God's will and design is. And they say, don't you, don't you realize you about made us sick? What are you doing? And he says, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? And they must have thought, who is this child? 
But then notice what Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 2. It says, after that time, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, was submitted to them. You see, what is the, one of the overarching responsibilities of a child to a parent? It is, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And Jesus did exactly that. He was subject. He was submitted to his parents. And Mary had known perfect obedience from a child. Imagine a child that perfectly obeyed you. And you had known that obedience for his entire youth. Perfect obedience. And now you get to John chapter 2, and he's 30 years old, and you suggest that maybe he should fix this water, or this, this wine problem, and he looks at you and says, ma'am, what does this have to do with us? What is going on here? Here's the other clue that's really important to note. Jesus did exactly what Mary would have wanted. Do you notice this? His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now it's said that a firkin of water could contain anywhere between eight to 12 gallons of water. So one water pot that would contain two or three firkins apiece, we're talking about 15 to 30 gallons of water, and there were, there were six of them. That's a lot. That's a lot of liquid. And Jesus saith unto him, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Jesus did exactly what his mother was desiring. Now, Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Jesus knew that he was going to turn the water into wine. His mom comes to him and says, they don't have any wine, Jesus. Hint, hint. Aren't you going to do something about it? And Jesus could have said, Mom, I'm getting around to it. Just wait. Just be patient. I'm going to get there. He said, well, that seems like it would have been a reasonable thing. Instead, he said, Mom. He didn't even say Mom. Ma'am, what's this got to do with us? My time, my hour is not yet come. Now there's our clue. What is Jesus saying? What did Mary need to know? Mary needed to know that Jesus wasn't turning the water to wine because she asked him. That's why Jesus said that to her. He did not turn the water to wine because his mom came to him and said, please get me out of a social, socially humiliating experience. Jesus, it is a catastrophe. Please exercise your miracle working power. And Jesus needed to say, no, it wasn't because of you, mom. Woman, what does this have to do between us? My Time, my hour is not yet come. Now, what is that phrase? That phrase, my hour is not yet come, you see it on multiple occasions in the Gospel of John, in this book. Jesus says it on multiple occasions. And do you know what he is always talking about? He is always talking about his death or his exaltation to be with God. My hour 
is not yet come. Jesus knew that his ultimate glorification would be in his death, resurrection, and ascension to his father. And he said to his mother, my hour, my time is not yet come. What was he saying? He was saying, mom, I'm not on your timetable. I'm not operating on your schedule. I'm operating on someone else's. I'm operating on his schedule. And even though I am going to turn the water into wine, even though I'm going to exercise my divine power, I'm going to manifest my glory, as verse 11 says. He manifested his glory to them. He said, I'm not doing it on your timetable. I'm doing it on God's. I'm doing it on my Father's. Now, this explains exactly this curious exchange, doesn't it? Mary needed to come to the position of submission. A son who had been perfectly submitted and obedient to her. And she needed to recognize that in turn, her submission was now required. Her submission to whom? God. Her submission not to an earthly person but a submission to the father of both Jesus and herself. She was the one now who needed to submit. And do you know what she says? His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now let me suggest just one thing by way of a footnote. Some of you were raised in the Roman Catholic Church and you were taught to pray to Mary. And you were taught to pray to Mary because your view, the Roman Catholic Church's view is that Jesus cannot resist the prayers of Mary. And one of the central passages that the Roman Catholic Church teaches on that is this. Look at John chapter 2. Jesus listened to his mom. And they utterly missed the meaning of the passage. Because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus very respectfully but very firmly told his mom, Mom, I'm not operating on your schedule. I'm not doing it because of you. I'm doing it on a different schedule, on a different timetable. And in fact, if you are speaking to someone who is confused about this passage, you might note that these are the last words that Mary speaks in the entire Bible. She doesn't have one more word to say after this one. What are her last words? Saying to the servants, whatever Jesus says, do it. Oh, if we have any confusion about that issue, friends, about whether we should be praying to Mary, we should just take her last words. Whatever Jesus says, do it. And that's how the, the scripture leaves the counsel of Mary, and it's the counsel that we should take for ourselves. So notice, first of all, this exchange here. Notice, secondly, an explanation. And finally, let's look at, thirdly, an example. An example. What do we learn from the way that Jesus related to his earthly mother and the way that we should understand our own relationships. The first thing is what Jesus was a perfect example of. Jesus was a perfect example of submitting to his parents in their youth. Scripture says unambiguously, children, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. 
And for those of us who are children, truly children in age here today, it is an unambiguous biblical command to obey your parents because this is right. One biblical obligation to our parents is to obey when we are children. There's a second unambiguous biblical principle. It is to honor. The commandment, the first commandment with promise from our Old Testament is honor your father and your mother. Now, we say, what does that mean to honor my father and my mother? Do you know the word in the Hebrew that is used to, to say honor has the idea of weight. It has the idea of being heavy like something really significant and weighty. And it says, honor your father and your mother. Jesus quotes that in the New Testament in the Greek. He says, honor your father and mother. And do you know what that word in the Greek means? It means to fix a value on, to count as precious or valuable. And you know, those two words give us such a good teaching on what it means to honor your parents Obeying your parents is for children. Children obey your parents. Honoring your parents is a lifelong duty. And it means to give them weight. It means that they have a significant weight and force in your life. And they are something valued and precious to you. Honor them. And Jesus himself lived out this obligation. Even as he respectfully put distance between him and his mother, he always related to her in a position of respect, of giving honor to her. And that is an obligation that all of us share. The third obligation that we see clearly biblically relating to our parents is care, is care. In fact, if you were to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, you would see Paul give instruction on this. Listen to what he says. But if any, in verse 4 of chapter 5, but if any widow, a person, a woman with a deceased husband, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety or religious faith at home and to requite or to pay back their parents for that is good and acceptable before God. What is the unambiguous obligation of children? It is to care. It is to provide or to requite, repay their parents. Paul says this when they are in need, caring for an elderly or infirm parent. This is a moral obligation that connects into honoring and to having their significant weight be in our lives. So notice Jesus upheld all of these obligations that apply equally to us. But notice what he did very consciously and directly. When it came time to operate on his father's timetable, on his father's schedule, there was a clear time of demarcation, of separation where he said, Ma'am, I'm not on your schedule anymore. I'm not on your timetable anymore. My hour is not yet come. 
what does he mean by this? And what are we to take from this? My suggestion is to each of us, it is not dishonoring to our parents to come to a place in our lives when we say something similar to them with respect and with honor and with inappropriate value attached to their counsel and to their wisdom that they can provide. A respectful demarcation to acknowledge that we have to run on God's schedule, on God's timetable just like Jesus needed to respectfully put this kind of demarcation in his own relationship. And yes, coming at it with the weight of honor and respect, and even coming at the, with the weight of a respect for counsel. Proverbs 23 tells us, don't despise your mother when she is old. Our parents' counsel should be precious to us. I know I can, I can testify that as a younger man, I would have been incredibly loath to go against the counsel of my father, against the counsel of my mother, even to this day. But yet there is also a recognition that there is a demarcation that ultimately I will not stand accountable before my mother one day. I will not stand accountable before my father one day. I will stand accountable before him. And just like Jesus respectfully needed to say, I'm on his timetable. I believe in his example. As our elder brother, our example, there is an appropriate way in which with honor and respect we can and indeed perhaps should say the same thing to our parents. But this is not just a lesson for adult children or parents with adult children. Perhaps, and just as powerfully, it is a lesson to those of us with children who are not yet adults. Because it shows us what our heart should be for our children. What our goal, what the finish line looks like. Do you ever wonder what Mary felt as she was raising Jesus? Do you ever wonder the anxieties that all of us as parents feel for their children as they grow up? Is he going to be protected? Is he going to be safe? Who is he going to marry, if anyone? What will be his circumstances in life? Mary must have dealt with all of those like we do. But what was ultimately the place that Jesus walked in in a complete, confident submission to their mutual father, God. And do you know the goal must be the same for each one of us who are parents? What is the greatest thing that you can see in the life of your child? Well, John tells us in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy. You say, that would be me. I would have no greater joy. I don't care what calling they have, what position they have, what socioeconomic status they have. I don't care about their educational attainment. I don't care about anything else. My greatest joy would be that they walk in truth. And that would be a wonderful biblical testimony. Well, friend, what does that look like? What does that look like? Turn over for just a minute to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, what does your child's spiritual development, what is the goal? I think we learn about that here in Hebrews 5. 
the author of Hebrews is frankly reproaching, reproving the people that he's writing to because he says in verse 12, for the, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you should be teachers yourselves right now, but rather you have need that one teach you again what are the first principles of the oracles of God. And he said, are, and are become such as have had need of milk and not of strong meat. He said, I would love it if you were eating like a grown-up right now. You were eating steak, but I can't feed you like you're eating steak because you're like a baby. And if you give a baby steak, it's going to choke. It can't take it. So all a baby can get is milk. Now, the point is, that's no way to live a spiritual life. And my challenge to you is today, are you a milk-drinking Christian? Do you need to be spoon-fed like a baby taking a spoon, a mother taking a spoon and saying, here, baby, open up? Or are you the kind of Christian who can sit to the table and take a knife and a fork and start cutting out your meal and eating it for yourself? Now, notice what he says the difference between those two types of people is. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful or untrained, they don't have experience, in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. What's the difference between the baby Christian who needs to get spoon-fed? They don't know how to use the word. They don't know how to go to the word and open it and get a meal. They need someone to spoon-feed it to them. Now, part of my calling as a pastor is to take food and hopefully feed you. But it's a very bad day if the only food you get is the food you get on Sunday. And you don't know how Monday through Saturday to go to your Bible and feed on it yourself. But keep on going. Notice now verse 14. But strong meat, the full meal belongs to them that are of full age, fully mature, even those who by reason of use, by using it, have their senses exercised or trained to discern both good and evil. You say, what's he saying there? What is the characteristic of someone who feeds on the word? By exercise, by training, they have exercised, they have trained their senses to discern what is right and wrong from the word of God. Now you say, what relevance does that have? Well, there's something here that's important. This word exercised, they have their senses exercised. It's the word that is connected to our English word gymnasium. I was in the gym Yesterday, believe it or not. And what do you do in the gym? You do things over and over. You take a, an exercise and you train on it over and over until it becomes second nature. And do you know what happens once you use the same exercise over and over and over and over again for weeks and months and years at a time? It becomes like second nature. What was once extremely difficult now becomes easier. 
And the point is, the goal for each one of our children is that they reach the time where they have so trained themselves in the gym, in their spiritual gymnasium, with the word of God and in prayer, that they are not going to you and saying, Mom or Dad, I can't figure out what's right or wrong. No. Their senses have been exercised in the gym And they are ready for strong meat. They're ready for a full meal because they are trained to discern what's right or wrong. Who have they been trained by? You, mom and dad? Or him? Of course, the answer is him. So if this is the goal, if the goal is that our children that we are raising at this church ultimately grow with their senses exercised in the gymnasium of spirituality to discern what is right and wrong for themselves, what should our prayer be? What should our goal be? I go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up, nourish them. That's the idea. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's the training of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord. Do you know in a sense what it is, parents? You and I are our children's personal trainers in godliness. You are the ones and I am the ones leading them to the different machines, the gymnasium of life, and helping them lift, helping them understand. If you've ever been in a gymnasium, you've seen someone lifting, and there's a spotter, someone who's holding the weight underneath them when it gets too heavy, and their arms are trembling. They give them a lift, just a little bit to get it over the bar. You and I, as parents, are like those helping our children to discern what is right, and wrong for themselves, challenging them in the gym, putting them or allowing them even at times to get in challenging situations that will stretch them and that will push them in their lives. We are bringing them up, but not in our training and instruction. In the training and instruction of the Lord, in his gym, not in mine. What does that tell me? It tells me that the exciting cooperation that I get to have as a parent is it's my job under, through the word of God to bring them into God's gym and says, children, let's get to work. Let's start exercising together. Let's start training together. And then what happens? As they start lifting, what do I do? I increasingly step out of the way. I increasingly say, you don't need a personal trainer on that one because he's training you now. I'm not. I can step out because no longer are you operating on the timetable of obedience to mom and dad. You're operating on the timetable of submission and obedience to our mutual heavenly father. Now, are we looking forward to that day as parents, young parents, Is that what your greatest heart is? God, I can't wait until I can step out and step out of the way and see my children discerning between good and evil like a mature Christian adult. What does that look like? I heard some very interesting counsel that I'd never honestly considered before. 
But one pastor who I respect said, you should baptize your child. You should baptize, you should have your child baptized when, they, when it becomes clear, when there is reason to believe that they would believe in Jesus even if you didn't. That's some powerful words, isn't it? When they are true believers, not because mom and dad believe, but because they are rooted in their own belief in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Whether that is the right biblical counselor or not, you discern. But there is something here in which we are always seeking to inculcate in our children, not not spoon-feeding them for all of their lives as they grow, but continually seeking to train their own muscles, train their own use. We've been doing that or trying to do that in our family recently. We've been talking about the music that we are wanting our children to listen to and love. And we have even begun already bringing our children into those discussions, asking them questions like, what is makes music good? What makes music bad? And seeing those little minds trying to grapple with and wrestle with what does make something good, what does make something bad. What's my goal? That my children would begin to discern what is good and helpful and edifying toward them and what is not. Not simply because dad tells them, but because they begin to be sensitive to the leading of the spirit of God by the word of God for themselves. You know, I have an example of this. I, I remember this even as a young lawyer. One of the biggest challenges that I would run into is I'd have ideas as a young lawyer, but I'd never know if they were good or bad ones. And so I'd always just defer to the older lawyer, the partner on it. Well, she's going to decide. She's going to decide. I, I don't ultimately need to decide what's a good or a bad idea. And you know, then it realized I'm going to need to make these decisions one day. Now suddenly I find myself as the senior lawyer. I have to make the decisions And now what I tell younger lawyers is, don't count on an older lawyer to make the decision. You decide what you would do if you were them. Now they'll choose what to do, but you make sure you exercise your judgment, even if it's not ultimately what's chosen. Develop your judgment. Develop that. And what we should be encouraging our children is, from a young age, develop their judgment. Develop their spiritual discernment. Bring them into the gymnasium of Christian life and encourage them, train them, push them, challenge them in all of the ways that God has encouraged you. Now, what hinders us in that? What hinders us as parents in either pushing them in that gymnasium of life or sometimes stepping back away from that gymnasium? I wonder often if it's that same kind of anxiety and fear that so often plagues us as parents. It's out of love and compassion that we don't want to see our children fall. We don't want to see our children get hurt. We don't want to see our children make decisions that we wouldn't make. But I would just counsel you, friends. What would, as you think back to your spiritual lives, what were the sources of your greatest spiritual growth? How oftentimes was it your mistakes, your own errors, circumstances, choices that you made that sometimes left scars, even to this day. You say, I don't want my children to go through that, and I don't either. But friends, sometimes we have to acknowledge that God uses those times most to accomplish his sanctifying purposes in our lives. And that's why my ultimate 
encouragement today to all of us who are parents is to choose for our internal lives the decision of faith. You say, what is that decision? It is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 about these people at Philippi, this church at Philippi that he so dearly loved. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Parents, what's your ultimate choice of faith? Be confident that if God has started a good work in your children that he has seen, he is faithful, he is trustworthy to complete, to perfect, to bring to finality the work that he has started. You see, our goal as parents, all of us, should be to have obedient sons and daughters, but ultimately, the question is not finally whether they will be obedient to mom and dad. The question ultimately is they whether they will be obedient to their heavenly father, just like Jesus showed us. And my prayer is that we, or ourselves, would be able to bring our children into that gymnasium of training and then know when it's time for them to exercise their own obedience with their heavenly father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus who was in obedient son, first and foremost, to you, Father. And as I look out here on parents with children young and older, Father, we do ask for your wisdom and for your direction. I pray, Father, for faith that would push back against anxiety and against fear. And I also pray for each one here no matter where they are, no matter what stage they are at in life, that each one of us would be exercising in that spiritual gym. We would be exercising our own discernment of what is right and wrong, of what is morally pleasing to you and what is morally displeasing. I pray that we would be growing to the mature believers that you have called us to.